This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I am a big uh, proponent of marriage. I think it's incredible. I think it's great. I think it's the one of the great fundamental uh resources we have in our lives to grow healthier, happier families, healthier, happier uh, people. It's, it's, it's essential to our lives and to a healthy life. And as our researcher just taught us, uh, Dr. Christy Williams, in the lower economic strata of, of our society, all marriages are not created equal, right? So if, if a 19 to 24-year-old person gets pregnant Historically, we'd say you got to marry. You got to marry the man. Marry the man that you know makes it legit. Now we've got a legitimate thing going on here, and then all of a sudden we suppose that that would then all of a sudden pull them out of the financial hole. And the problem is, it's not the reality they're finding. They're finding that it doesn't necessarily increase or create long-term health for the mother in economic uh, with economic struggles. So. It's, it might be a myth to just automatically push marriage. Now, we should probably be pushing, well, let's not get pregnant, right? That should be pushed. But again, because of whatever reasons and accidents or, you know, things happen that all of a sudden yet you're pregnant – one of the things we probably ought to do is make sure we're evaluating each situation one-on-one. What is the 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 educational and the mental and the intellectual abilities of the people involved that are going to be parenting? What are the uh, financial implications? What What is their earning ability? What educational level have they attained? What resources do they have available to them? It's, these are all important parts of the decision. And there are people that would love to adopt if you want to give the child up. There are parents begging, praying, crying for opportunities to adopt. And so um, marriage may not always be the answer in those situations because, again, who is the father? What are the, what are the opportunities of the father being able to make it? What is the father's support level at getting out so, you know, it used to make more sense, and I think it used to make more sense as a solution because we were in a different culture. We were in a different environment where we could just say, you know, you ought to stay married or you ought to get married if you get pregnant. And that made sense in, in smaller town kind of Christian-supported cultures and environments because you had a tight-knit group maybe more around you. But in inner-city, difficult, financially-strained situations— it doesn't necessarily lead to health. Uh, and if it doesn't lead to health for the mother, it probably won't lead to health for the child. It might lead to abuse and, and other situations. So be careful when we think about our answers from 20, 30 years ago being the only answer today. Um, there are more options and more choices that are healthy um, that, again, there are people that would love to raise your child in a, in a marriage. Um, if if that has to happen as well. So let me give you some other things we want to blow up, a few other myths about marriage that we want to support and blow up. Um, remember, I'm a relationship coach. I'm a marriage 
coach. I, I work with couples every day, thousands a year, teaching them how to strengthen their marriage. I'm not anti-marriage. I am a, I am a realist, though. And um, to think that it's the answer, it, sometimes it's not. I mean, sometimes the answer for everybody is not to go to college either. Sometimes the answer is to get to work, right? Sometimes the answer is, um, you know, there's it needs to be customized to what you're going through. Another myth here, that your true love will automatically know what to say and do to make you happy. I'm going to go with no. I'm going to go with no on that. Um, because think about it. I don't even know what I truly want to be happy. So how on earth is my wife supposed to know that? We got to be real about what what is a realistic thing that we could be doing and a realistic uh, expectation in my relationship is the the reality is, is if I want my wife to know something, I need to tell her. If I'm too afraid to tell her, then that's just not going to work. You need to go by based on what we're communicating, what we're sharing with each other. Healthy marriages have the ability to share. Uh, another um, interesting you know, myth is that having kids might bring couples closer together. But- <laughs> Some of the latest research shows that having children actually increases uh, or decreases marital satisfaction, but it increases family satisfaction. So as a family, you're getting healthier. You like what you're doing. Things are happening. Your family life's getting better because you're having these children. But a lot of times these children are going to take your time away from each other. So the only way to actually make a couple work better after having kids together is to work on it and to put your couple and your marriage relationship first. Thank you. You put it first and then all of a sudden, bada boom, bada bing, whatever you're focusing on is going to grow. If you focus on your relationship, your marriage, your marriage will get better with children. If you focus only on your children, your marriage will probably suffer. Um, uh, Let's do one more and then we'll take a break. Um, Differences in your marriage will ruin your marriage. Fact is not true. Differences are actually essential to a healthy relationship, just like, you know, uh, potential infections and issues in our environment are better for your for your immunization, for your uh, immunology, your ability for your immune system to be strengthened. You need a resistance, right? You need to have something fighting against you. The same is true in our marriages. Whenever somebody tells me we never fight, I don't think, oh, they're healthy. I immediately think, well, how? Is it that you don't talk? Is it that you don't care? Is it that you have everything exactly in common? Um, that usually doesn't happen. There's a point where you somebody has a different opinion. But at some point, differences don't kill your marriage. Actually, differences give you opportunities to get stronger and better in your marriage. Uh, Thank you. And another myth that we've got to blow up. We'll take a break, come back, continue this coaching corner, give you a few more myths about marriage that we need to uh, really focus and deal with. Stick with us, folks. Helping you uh, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, um, another little uh, myth for you as we're debunking some of the myths about uh, marriage. Um, we've kind of already talked about the fact that, uh, you know, in your marriage, kids 
can bring happiness, but they also can bring dissension and division. So it depends on what you're focusing on. That's one merit myth we got to blow up. Another myth is that uh, marriage means you're going to have less sex, less <laughs> sex in your relationship. But according to researchers at the Kinsey Institute, um, they basically found that couples that were married um, are having more sex and they're actually having better sex as they would rate it than those couples that are single. We kind of think that our single friends that are uh, you know, engaging in sex are so much happier. But uh, 43% said that of the singles, um, women who were be- ages, between the ages of 25 and 29 reported having uh, uh, fewer uh, sex, uh, ha- having sex fewer times than those of their married friends of the same age. So that's, you know, Pretty interesting, pretty interesting little myth debunked. Um, another uh, interesting thing we talked about a little bit is that happy couples don't argue. The research actually does show that uh, the healthiest couples actually do have a healthy dose of arguments. It's it's not whether you argue or not that makes the difference. It's how you discuss things that is the real key that we need to pay attention to. Uh, many people have a marriage myth belief that being married is the same as cohabitating. Not true, folks. Not true. There is a big dis- d- uh, division between those that are married and living together and those that are cohabitating and living together. And the researcher said, believe it or not, that those that are cohabitating aren't going to last as long as those that are married simply because they have a commitment. People that would choose to cohabitate might already have an aversion to getting married, and that very sign may be meaning they're less uh, willing to commit. Bing! There you go, folks. Just a few of the myths about marriage and children uh, and communication debunked for you. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. The strengths become the weaknesses. So uh, over evolution of the ma- of the body, we, we needed certain traits to survive. And the body learned. And, you know, if you were able to survive long enough to procreate and have children, those genes could be handed down. And now look at the curveball we've got because we were able to run and sweat and, you know, rehydrate. Our body started craving salts and water and fluids. Now, all of a sudden, that has turned into, hey, let's go get some fries and a Diet Coke. Not good. Or fries and a Coke. And now all of a sudden your brain loves the sugar because it wants as much sugar on board as it can get. Your brain loves the salt. And now we have to deal with it. It used to save our lives and now we don't need to chase an animal and run and sweat and perspire for hours. So um, how do we handle it now? Do you know how many times I've had people say, well, I mean, I know I've got this physical problem. I mean, I know, I know I've been anxious and depressed my entire life. I know it. But I don't want to get medicine. I don't want it. But what you're battling isn't just a weakness. You're battling evolutionary genes that are in you that have made you be a really uh, maybe tense, anxious person so you wouldn't get you know, snuck up on by a wild animal or a predator. You have that worry. That's in you. That's not going away. And so as the good doctor told us, you can either regulate it away, you know, by having 
more regulation on what we can do, what we can't do, more regulation on our mental health industries. Or we could also just, I guess, use behavior change, which I have a lot of people want to get over anxiety, but they don't know how and they don't get therapy and they don't read books about it. Or eventually you're going to need to let science in. Somehow we need to break down a little bit, I think, of the belief that science is against us instead of science maybe there to be the valuable bridge to to bridge our our past and our future. I mean, and a lot of the people are God fearing people that you know they don't they don't think they need medicine and drugs to fix something. But God also gave you science, right? He also gave you you know insight. The ability to learn and to read and to think. He gave you choice and agency. So if we're going to, you know, invoke God into the argument about how we handle our evolution and our realities, then let's involve him in everything. There are scientists that are deeply prompted and moved by a God. So let's make choices and let's not do it at the expense of our health. Interesting stuff, folks. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us, folks. More fun in just a few minutes. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, with more than 3 billion people, half of the world's population currently is living in poverty, and over a third of them living on less than $1.25 a day. Poverty is one of the world's top social economic concerns. The United States is attributed with 47 million people living on or below the poverty line. There, uh, however, are no silver bullets to ending poverty. It's such a complicated issue. But Brigham Young University students, along with a prominent NGO organization, non-government organization, Fundación Paraguaya, uh, might have found a catalyst for change. And here to talk to us about it today and his project, Poverty Stoplight, is Professor uh, Jeff Sheets. And Jeff is a professor in the advertising department here at Brigham Young University, but before was a a director of the Laycock Center for Creativity and Collaboration here at BYU. Jeff, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. What a cool idea, really, when you – I mean, you may be taking on probably one of the most complicated issues of humanity, poverty. No, absolutely. This is one of those types of projects that really gets you interested in how does the world around you work. And when you look at BYU's aims and mission statements, being able to help alleviate those social ills that we're all facing. Um, we might we might be able to think about poverty. Well, that's not happening in my neighborhood here in Provo. Right. Um, but it actually is at certain levels. Poverty is one of those most interesting, multifaceted um, elements of our of our society. What makes up the the complexity? I mean, some people think, well, if those people would just get a job, then they'd just be out of poverty. It's not that simple. No, it's never that simple. In fact, the, the great thing about Poverty Stoplight as a, as a tool for any kind of social innovator who's looking to alleviate social ills, it actually looks at it in a multidimensional way. Poverty can't be described by just the outward appearance of things. It might not be right. the fact that you live in a hut and you have dirt floors. Those are the things that might be glamorized in a movie. 
But poverty actually can be found in multiple levels. And I, I've heard you mention even a little bit about it might be mental health, right. social, right. social uh, issues that you have just in a community. So what, what Poverty Stoplight tries to do is it puts it down into multi-facets, 50 different indicators. It might be everything from income levels to clean water hmm. to health, but also safety, security. It could be things about yeah, bowling. crime even. I mean, it's probably – it's everything. It is. And, and okay, so this is an app that – uh, your students have put together with Fundacion Paraguayo. Is that how it works? Correct. So Martin Burt is the this amazing social innovator from South America. Yeah. And, and I find it this really kind of beautiful um, serendipity and paradox almost that out of one of the poorest countries in right. the world is coming a methodology and a metric which can actually help alleviate one of their largest issues, which is poverty. Amazing. And so when you think about that, it's, it's kind of a beautiful idea. And then for BYU, we're really excited to be able to try and help um, establish how can it better be used, how can you better communicate it, coming from a, a communication and a storytelling side of things. We mm. want to help tell this story to other areas of the world. And it's actually begun to export now. We're starting in Paraguay. It has now gone through all of South America. We've actually implemented things in Africa and all wow. over Asia. So... Um, it has this potential to to enable you to see how those 50 different indicators are actually being implemented in different communities. And if you were an NGO and you and you had you cared about education and that mm-hmm. was your thing and literacy is what you're going to eradicate, instead of walking in and looking on the surface level and saying, "Well, it looks like to me you guys can't read or you have a problem here," what the what this tool does is it actually gives each family a chance to do a self diagnosis where they do a visual survey and they describe for themselves, well, this is where my level of poverty is in these 50 areas. Yeah. So they might say, well, my house is good. Yeah, I, I we got, got a, a house. And that's why it's called the stoplight is you pick a green, a yellow, or a red. So if it's green, you say, oh, my house is great. I've got a nice roof. I don't have a problem. I look at my water situation and say, well, it's probably yellow. I still go out to a, a public cistern. Well or for something, the, yeah. Mm-hmm, but I get my water, but it's clean. Um, and then – and then, but oh, in this area, but whoa, we're sick. Lit- we, we we have a lot of illness in our community, right? Or literacy, I can't read, right? So I can see these pictures, but red I don't know. Light. I don't know what the words say. So I put a red there, and that gives everyone a chance to actually look at the things that they feel are important that they want to change, and that's where the that's actually where poverty can be eradicated is mm-hmm. when you self-identify with this is what I want to do. Because then you could go in and target uh, literacy for that family. Maybe improve the community by putting a well in or, or a, uh, some kind of uh, water delivery system. So th- then you can make an actual change. Exactly. And then you don't also have kind of that gringo mentality which says, I've come to solve yeah. all your problems okay. and I see what you need. Yeah. You let them self-determine, this is what I want to do and these are the changes I want to make. And it actually works really well with mentoring within a community because mm. the, the app works – so there's no magic app. There's not an right. app that we're going to put on the iTunes store and start right. downloading to save millions. But what this actually does is it maps with geotagging where all of the green lights, red lights, and yellow lights are. So if you start to say, wait a minute, a street – one street away from me – and if you think about this, especially in the developing world, it's really powerful. Mm. If one street away from me, they all have green lights on the same issue that I have a red. Well, I now have a mentor or someone I can turn to in my own community and say, how did you do that? Let's model behavior against those that have positively made an impact. That's powerful. Plus you could, I guess, um, the NGOs, the bigger – the organizations could start actually targeting like uh, which area could we have the biggest impact by making one change 
because it'll change the most population. And now you've you've hit exactly on why it's it's about using digital technology to be able to sh- demonstrate that and show the power of Man. climate change. Does so is the idea, though, I mean, I'm assuming a lot of these people, they won't have the app, but they'll have social workers in the area and the social workers can go sit with the families and help them build the, the, the actually take the assessment and then build the, the plan. That's correct. And th- so that is what the whole methodology. And so it, an app is, is kind of maybe the, the easy way for us to describe. Yeah. There's a, a platform to help change this. But it is a, a multi-step process with an individual social worker from an NGO working with an individual family, hmm. doing the self-diagnosis, and then creating the action plan that re- remediates oh. what the issues are. And then following up, imagine... You all of a sudden have follow-ups. How are we doing in our literacy program? Precisely. every And so that's where a social worker becomes so key. You yeah. start with the impetus of, I want change. They make their own decision. They make an action plan. Three months later, they're back saying, let's evaluate. Mm-hmm. What have we done on these six steps? Yeah. And a year later, they're still in the same process, helping them change. Unbelievable. Do we do this in the United States? Not to this level. The The U.S. has been invited to participate with this as well. It's, it's kind of an interesting um, conundrum. We even need to look at it in Provo. But right, often we right. would say, well, I don't want to do this here yeah. in my community. We, we don't need these kinds of tools. These are for you know, the developing world. But the idea behind having someone help you self-diagnose, these are the issues that mm-hmm. I have, and then build an action plan and give you a little bit of follow-up and, and commitment to, to finish, I think we could use that everywhere. <laughs> well, in fact, in um, downtown Salt Lake City was known for doing a really good job with their homeless and, in fact, even giving them apartments that they would then and then they go to, to get into the program you you get a place to live an apartment but then you'd have to have a social worker assigned to you the social worker would assess you find out why you're homeless then help you deal with the homeless issues that you have to deal with mental health physical health you know education inter- or literacy and then build a plan to get you kind of ramped back up it's almost – it sounds like that, but at a global level. It's powerful. Yeah, and, and Salt Lake's model is exactly in that same kind of plan and platform. It's, it's, it's a little bit ironic when you think about it from maybe a BYU and a church perspective. Yeah. It, it really is like having a bishop and a Relief Society president yeah. come and like sit down with leaders you. that mm-hmm. come and sit and assess. And, and f- build an action plan and describe if we're going to give assistance in these areas, here's how we're going to follow up and what commitments you're going to make yeah. in order to – to change it that. also seems like if you could get a, all of the the large churches, the Catholic Church in South America, if you could get them to become a part of this and help in the assessment, then it's not just giving care. It's it's not just giving fish. It's teaching people how to fish. Exactly, and that's that. Martin uses one of those. That's one of his monikers that he built a one of his own frameworks around, which is teach a man to fish. And that mm. that methodology is the plan and the hope. Uh, he's actually presented this at the Vatican to one of, their, really? one of their global poverty summits. And, and the materials that our BYU students have created have been the materials that he uses in presentations mm-hmm. in, those, in those locations. I mean, because I could see it easily, you know, being in the LDS church worldwide, but then the Catholic church is so much bigger. And, and then even bigger than all of that are the, all the NGOs, all of the other organizations that are all trying to do good, but aren't necessarily – so process oriented they're not it's not so systemic right it's like here let me just feed you or i also see it's a great idea that if you could flip open like a dashboard and see where they need water services 
then if you're a charity that goes in and puts wells in places or pumps in, you know, creates an actual water system for somebody, you could go target your areas. That, that's exactly the, the platform is supposed so to So powerful. Yeah. What's been great for us when you think about this, BYU students have this desire inside them to want to contribute in a positive way. Right. They, they think it's their mission to change the world. And what's really helpful is at BYU to have centers that want this to happen. The, the key center for this on campus is called the Ballard Center. Um, and their, their mission is to work with social innovators and help them develop better – how to do good better. Yeah. Everything you've described about well, wouldn't it be amazing if – BYU students can contribute to that. And so as a professor working with the director of the Ballard Center, his name's Todd Manwaring. Mm. He and I have worked with Martin Burt now for – Todd's worked with him for over seven years. I've worked with him, together with them for four. And the, the number of students who've been able to now help see this through. They've been – they've traveled the world. They've worked with the NGOs in places in Africa and all over South America who are implementing these changes. Man. Building the platforms of how to get the churches to say, well, what if we, what if we went and did the self-assessments? I mean, not to – create a radical idea, but imagine if a missionary force of, you know, 75,000 yeah. is part of their work would actually go and say, what if we talked and today you don't want to hear my message, but would you look at this tool and let's take this assessment. <laughs> It'd be amazing. Every church leader in the imagine? Catholic church all over the world, a, a well, priest and doing every that? United Way member, every, um, what do they call the, the core? Uh, the Peace Corps. The Peace Corps member, everyone out there, if they were doing an assessment, and then you get a global census yeah and how powerful and when you see the map and i'll just i'll spin one around for you just to look at it you see red yellow dots and green dots and so you can change the indicator and those all those dots will change based on a lot of red and a lot of yellow yeah and there's a lot of work to do but if you change it to another uh, another facet of poverty you might be able to see a lot of green holy cow jeff let's take a break we're speaking with uh professor jeff sheets he is actually a professor of account or of uh Advertising. We'll come back and talk about how he got from there to working on this program. It's called Poverty Stoplight, a powerful opportunity to change the world, quite literally. Um, One family at a time, one community at a time, finding the need and targeting the specific need that's driving a family into poverty. We'll continue the discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. We are joined by Professor Jeff Sheets uh, from Brigham Young University, and he's talking to us today about Poverty Stoplight, which is a uh, is a project that um, they've put together here at Brigham Young University, but in partnership with uh, a foundation, Fundación Paraguaya, which is a foundation from Paraguay, and uh, it's to help NGOs, non-government organizations, fight poverty. But really what it is, at first, it's a tool to gather the information so, and then to deliver an action plan for how each specific person as a family or, or as a community can start to, to handle their issues. I guess it's also a way to accumulate best practices. Yeah, absolutely. It works as an amalgamator of those best practices so that you, you might recognize 
um, certain social innovations that have tried to change something. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about clean water is maybe an easy one because we, we see what wells have done and then it becomes um, how to get water directly to the house and other, and other areas. When you see what works in one community, what this also does is it, it helps each area of the world kind of modify it to their space. Right. What works in Paraguay will not work in sub-Saharan uh-huh. Africa. Mm. So you don't say, well, here's a place that gets flooded. Yeah. Always fly. use this. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work that way. So you allow it to actually modify and change based on the location mm. where you are. So don't do in Cambodia what you did in Ghana and what you did in Ghana, maybe you do want to do differently in in Paraguay. Right. It's interesting too because I, I think I remember a few years ago they were giving cell phones out to the poor. In those in poverty, which seems like that would be fantastic because then they could communicate and get a job and, and you know, and have a phone number, except if that's not your problem. So if you don't have a communication problem, that's not what's keeping you in poverty. Being given a phone won't help me. If what I need is food, then I need food. Phones won't help if I need food. Exactly. And they might have sold the phone to go get the food, right. and then you've, you're right back in the same cycle. And yet we expended all the money. And so I guess part of this is really to target. It's just data. Gathering the right data and then targeting the right data with solutions creates progress. Exactly. And the, this idea of data, that's where the app comes in, is it allows technology to do the heavy lifting of, of bringing all the data together, letting an NGO see then where their best efforts can be done, and if someone is – perhaps if, if people are really kind of already green, as we would say, yeah. it looked like they had a problem, maybe on the outside from the surface right. level. But when they self-assess, they say, well, what's, what's really driving my problems are three other issues. Interesting. And plus, plus you could start to see if everyone's – if we turn a community green, so green light versus red light, then we can also go to the green areas. It's not like the green areas are done. It just means now we know what works in those areas – so it's just a well of more information. Right. And you might be able to take those best learnings and turn them on to 22 other indicators who are actually still yellow or That's red. That's right. And I guess the goal would be of the 50 indicators to keep turning all of them green eventually. Absolutely. But even in the biggest cities, the best cities, in the best neighborhoods – they're not all green. No. And that's, that's the great thing about how this should roll out is that each person – I mean, even if you didn't take this exact methodology, if you were to evaluate your own life today, no matter what circumstance you're in and you're listening to this, you think, well, I'm, I'm perfect. Yeah, I got that. Actually, we're all poor in something. Right. We're, we're lacking in some things. And it might be self-determination. It might be um, something to do with safety and security. It might, right. you know, you just, you, what you should do is just do a little analysis and what could you, what could you change? And then you start to make an action plan to, to get it. I love it. You know what is interesting for me? You have worked with yourself, companies like you know, uh, Times Inc., Nike, Apple, Franklin Covey, Nintendo – and a bunch of nonprofits. How how did you get involved? How does a professor of advertising end up in this? Well, that's a, that's a great question. The the again, the coolest part about wanting to work with BYU is you have this ability to to really change the world. And so, what we want to do is put all of our time and talents and efforts into lifting our brothers and sisters around us. Right. And and so, if you can use the way I look at it, people 
kind of laugh at advertising and think, what? That's like the That's worst. That's crazy. You just sell makeup. <laughs> yeah. You, you make people buy things they don't need. <laughs> but if it's really that powerful, right? If it's that great creative solution Yeah, for as tool, good as you say you are. Yeah. So if, it's, if it can really make people do things they don't want to do, well, then couldn't it also be used to create really positive changes all over the world? That's and couldn't so you engage people and persuade them to understand who they really are yeah. deep down and yeah. then to make a positive change for themselves? So, actually, it's brilliant, right? Like, Use supposedly the 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 worst tools that make America the worst, but use it to be the best and help people become the best. That's that's, that's how we teach it. So so for me, I'm I'm always seeking for these kinds of projects. And this one came out. And when you think about social innovation, um, we 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 had two centers work together on campus to work on this. If you if you only all great. Innovation, innovative ideas have to come from some kind of mashup of multiple mm. disciplines. If you went to an engineer and they said solve poverty, they would design you a thing that does it. Right. If you went to the, a business person, they'd say, well, I've got a business plan and they'll make it. If you went to maybe a filmmaker, they'd make a film. But what if you brought all those people together and you yeah. kind of mashed these ideas up and it got a little messy because everyone wanted to do their thing until they started having empathy for each other. Mm-hmm. They, they actually started looking at the real problem, the root cause. Yeah. And then you start getting these innovative, creative solutions that we've never yeah. seen before because these different disciplines all came together. You know, it's probably the reason we don't have as much progress on a lot of issues, poverty, cancer. Um, when we have somebody come in to talk about poverty, they're usually a social worker just bringing in the statistics of poverty. And have, they have a bunch of ideas. But then I think of a – but you still have to communicate the idea. Then you could use technology to gather and accumulate more data and best practices. But you still also have to sell it to the community that might have to pay for it. And and then you need a network or somebody like a business side that can bring in businesses that could innovate. So it really – maybe that's the problem. And even in academics, we see everybody broken into these departments – but the departments, and I've seen it here at BYU and every university, they don't talk well. They don't interchange well. Hard to work together. You know no, what no I mean? question. And, and that is that siloed approach, I think, is kind of, in, in my personal opinion, is, is, is gone, is, is bygone. Then you have, like, though, but then you have these other organizations on campus, like the Ballard uh, Institute. Is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, the Ballard Center. Ballard Center and um, the uh, Laycock Center for Creativity and Collaboration. And then all of a sudden, they they can bring in all of the other talented departments, right? To co- to to create a coalition. That's exact. That's those are their exact purposes, and that's why it's it's been really fulfilling to see BYU take a stand and have these centers, which will bring together multifaceted, talented yeah. people to try and and tackle these these things. When you look at the the aims of a BYU education, one of those aims, the fourth one, is to have lifelong learning and service. And what we're really believing is we should start our students with that lifelong learning and service mentality while they're here. Mm -hmm. And they're making these changes and implementing these kinds of programs as a student. They're going to be that much more prepared to continue to contribute as they leave. Love it. I love the kind of lifelong idea. I also love the fact that you're showing the complexity of poverty, the mere fact that it's a 50-point assessment. And um, so – it's, I think it's important for all of us to lose the myth that poverty is about weak people that just don't try. Poverty is about – and the majority of the world really is have some level of 
being impoverished. Absolutely. And and the great thing is even the poorest person in the world can be rich in something. Yeah. Great. I mean, they'll still have green lights. No question. And they and that that also helps re-empower them to remember where they are in a positive way. Yeah. And then use some of those those yeah. kind of self-affirmative goals to, to, to help change. Focus those negatives. strengths to deal with the negatives. What can we do just if anyone's out there listening, where can they go? Where should they go to, to, to help? So we've, we've created – as part of this project, we've created a website for them. It's called PovertyStoplight.org. And on that site, it actually enables any – especially those who are involved with NGOs. It shows what's the – how do I get involved? How do I get my organization to utilize this type of methodology? How do I contribute my data so we can start to see this map mm-hmm. grow out? Um, so at povertystoplight.org, you can see all of the information. It, it shows you exactly how to join the movement. Um, it gives you all kinds of explanations as to what this organization has been doing all over the globe. And, and can they access – I guess once they're on, they can access the data and say, oh, our NGO could be helping these people then. Correct. The map is there. shows all the tools, samples Huge. of the assessments. It's, uh, it's pretty great. Ah, oh, Jeffrey. Well done, my friend. That's some pretty powerful stuff. Again, Jeff Sheets is his name. And if, if you want to contact him, you just got to Google Jeff Sheets BYU professor and you'll get right to his page, I'm sure. But go check out povertystoplight.org and uh, understand, folks, we're all part of this uh, big family here on Earth. And if we can lift one, we lift us all. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Matt. We'll take a break, folks. Come right back, and uh, we're going to talk Olympics again. Leanna Tan's going to go on a little tangent. We're going to find out uh, what she's been cooking up at the Olympics. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm telling you, uh, being on a campus, it's, it's pretty amazing. What's going on when you put together a bunch of think of just the energy that uh, these students have to do good and their talent and their innovation. And then you put them with a few professors that know what they're doing and a couple of connections, maybe with somebody in South America. Bada boom, bada bing. You have just put together a pretty powerful catalyst to create change. And I guess in the end for all of us. Isn't that what this is about? It's about creating change. Change in you, change in me. We make it happen. Anyway, honored uh, to be a part of it all. So uh, we also wanted to be focusing on the Olympics in this first hour. And, uh, you know, it's about to end this weekend. It's officially going to end. But no fear. You haven't completely missed your chance. The next Summer Olympics are just four years away in Tokyo, Japan. And if you're inspired to compete yourself... One of our producers, Leanna Tan, is going to teach you how to become an Olympian. She'll share with us some workout secrets so you can begin your own Olympic training. I know I'm not the only one who's been inspired by the Olympics these past few weeks. Since I know you're all secretly trying to find your inner Olympian as well, I figured I'd share a few tricks of the trade. There are 42 different sports represented in this year's Summer Olympics. That's a lot. But you might be fearing that in order to start training for them, you need to do some heavy investing. Golf clubs, horses, tennis balls, bows and arrows. But don't worry. There is one sport where all you really need is your legs. Running. So, let's start with the basics. As you're spending these last couple weeks of summer trying to get in shape, 
I'll let you know the top five secrets to my daily Olympic training routine. Ow! I hate this. Running is terrible. Everything is the worst. What? Start tracking your steps the moment you wake up. So I yourself short. You put in a lot of effort tumbling from your bed and sliding into those slippers. I never want to leave this bed. I'm pretty sure you burn a calorie or two just walking from the bathroom and back. Uh-oh. Gotta take a whiz. I better get up. According to the Healthy Eating Guide, sitting burns an estimated 75 calories per hour. Sit up! Am I helping you feel less guilty about your life choices? No. Not really. Two! Run in the heat of the day. After like two minutes, you already look super sweaty, and people think you've been running for like ever. This is the key to the athletic look. Oh, I've been uh, working out. And sweating? That kind of helps you lose weight, too. I just wanna make you sweat. Energymizers.com says sweating and overheating forces your body to work harder and your heart to pump faster. Think of all that water weight you're shedding. Mm, it's mostly water weight. <laughs> Explore your music options. I know you want to go for the conventional Kanye or Kesha song, but you'd be surprised at how good it feels to run to some good old Michael Bublé. Or Celtic music. You know, I've heard bagpipes really get the blood flowing. The options are endless, really. Sing the ABCs while you're planking. And then sing them backwards. It helps to keep your mind entertained so you're not so tempted to glance at that stopwatch every two seconds. My watch is stopped. And it somehow makes you forget that every fiber in your body is on fire. Remember to recharge after all that hard work. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Don't let anyone make you feel guilty about eating three eggs, a banana, peanut butter, a bowl of cereal, a piece of toast, a mandarin orange, and some of yesterday's leftovers after a good, hard workout. You deserve it. Plus, it's a two-in-one benefit, exercising and cleaning out your fridge. What are you doing? Hold me, do it again. So there you go. Follow these five simple tips to have a much more enjoyable workout, and you'll be one step closer to your very own Olympic career. Oh, and don't forget to count all those calories you burn jumping up and down to squeeze into those jeans. Every little bit counts. Well, happy exercising. I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You ever had somebody say, you know, what do you recommend at the restaurant? What do you recommend here? We were talking earlier about how Donald Trump uh, basically ordered for Chris Christie at a dinner. Basically ordered a mistake. You got to try some of these Trump steaks. And so we I was looking and found this interesting article about uh, from businessinsider.com about just certain 
things that you, you shouldn't eat ever. And it comes from a, um, a person that spent over 20 years working in food poisoning lawsuits. Bill Marler put together this article, and he has six foods that he simply will not eat anymore. And um, none of them necessarily are like from Chipotle because they keep getting in trouble. Um, check out this list, though. Raw oysters. Just he's not going to do the raw oyster thing. Ben, have you ever had a raw oyster? Oh, he's having one right now. Hmm. It sounds good, Ben. Yeah, they're not bad. You really... Okay, that's not how you eat an oyster. You just kind of more... With the oyster, you just kind of swallow it. You slurp it like that. Yeah. You're chewing it. If you chew it, you're just going to end up chewing it all day. Yeah. Don't eat raw oysters. Marler says that he has seen more foodborne illnesses linked to shellfish in the past five years than in the two preceding decades. And the reason? The culprit? Warming waters. As the global waters are heating up, it's producing microbial growth, which ends up in the raw oyster that uh, you happen to be slurping down. Uh, The second thing he suggests you don't eat, don't eat pre-cut or pre-washed fruits and vegetables. Anything that's pre-washed, pre-cut, careful. You got you got to anything that's been processed, pre-cut, pre-washed, take them out, wash them, do it again. Don't eat raw sprouts, which I couldn't agree more. Why is anybody eating sprouts anyway? Actually, I like sprouts, but sprouts, uh, you know, they come with more than thirty bacterial outbreaks primarily salmonella and E. coli in the past two decades. Sprouts, you know, they've got some problems. Watch out for rare meat, obviously. This seems like a no-brainer. You know, but if it bleeds, it leads it's to so the hospital. so good, though. Do you like raw meat? Not raw meat, but rare. Like rare, rare? Pretty rare. Yeah. Do you know what we call that in my neck of the woods? What? You're a carnivore. I'll accept that. <laughs> Watch out. You got you got to get the heat up 160 degrees to kill the bacteria or you're going to get E. coli or salmonella. Uncooked eggs, I wouldn't, you know, don't eat them. Don't do the Rocky Balboa thing. Put it in your smoothie. Buh. Buh. It's a no-brainer. It'll kill you, folks. Raw eggs, watch out. Watch out. And watch out for today's trend. There's a big trend about unpasteurized milk and juices because many are arguing that pasteurization depletes nutritional value. Yeah, okay? It also saves your life. It it makes it so your insides don't try to come out on the outside. It keeps your inners on the inners. It's just better for you. There's a reason Louis Pasteur came to this world. One way, one reason is to make sure that you keep your drink down. So don't drink something that isn't pasteurized, for heaven's sakes. We're talking about restaurants, right? If you want to drink raw milk, you know, right out of the cow, at home, you need a life, not to be rude. You need to do something. Hey, here's another one. Don't eat, don't eat rare pearls. Listen to this story. At an Issaquah 
Washington. I used to live there, you know. Did you? Yeah. They have a really... Did you ever go to this Italian restaurant? No, It's I, called Montalcino Ristorante Italiano. No, I, I've never been there. I don't know if that's how you say it, but that's... It, it sounded right. It sounded like a good pronunciation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A woman bit down on a rare pearl while eating a meal of clams the other day at a restaurant. She's eating like a clam sauce probably, some clam and linguine meal. Mmm, sounds good. At an Italian restaurant, Lindsay has – did you know Lindsay? Lindsay and Chris, they live up in Issaquah? No, no. Yeah, they live there. I thought you'd know just because you live there. It's a big town. Uh, they were eating at Montalcino Ristorante Italiano, and recently when she bit into something hard into her entree, Haz says that she wasn't sure what it was, uh, pulled it out, put it in her pocket, and went home to do some research. She took it to a gemologist who determined it was a quahog purple pearl worth about 600 bones. Pretty lucky lady. I mean, sure, it's a molar. Sure, she shattered a molar. But she done found herself a pearl. That's pretty neat. Normally, you'd say, waiter, something crunchy just broke my tooth. But this young lady, smart, smart. She just took it home. She says, and the owner of the Ristorante Montalcino Ristorante, Cindy Nardone, says she's so happy for Haz. That's great. She should have kept the pearl and then... Ask for a refund on her meal. Not a bad idea. Just trying to help. Is that how we do it in Issaquah? Yeah. Milk all the money you can. (laughs) She may make it into a necklace, by the way. That is cool. That is great. Something you can't always do when you find something strange in your meal. You know? Hey, I found some hair. It's just weird to put hair on a necklace. Make, Make it into a necklace. No, thanks. I'm going to be in the restroom for a minute. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Man, interesting subject, isn't it? When you talk about morality, the reason we do what we do and why we do it, it's and we don't consciously sit there and say, I will now go try to look better by being morally superior to everybody. But we all know somebody that has to tell us when we're doing something wrong. Or I had friends growing up in high school that if I, I would make a joke that they would laugh at, but then they'd be like, oh, Matt, shouldn't say that. And it it was hilarious. That's why they were laughing. And they were like, man, what's wrong with me? Why, why do I say that? Because I must be such a misfit. Anyway, morality. And one of the things I talk a lot about when I work with my clients is – we, we, there's a thing called logical force. Okay. So logical force is when we make a decision based on logic, not morality. For example, um, if you have a friend that called you a name or embarrassed you at a, at an event, it would be logical that you don't talk to her, I guess, for a week. Ignore her. Ben does this all the time with the producers around him. It's very effective. Well, Okay, and um, we're talking against it now, so you wouldn't want to probably argue that it's effective. I just need to put that in. Okay. Sorry. So, so you're justified, right, because you're doing something that is right. If you went and interviewed your friends, nine out of your ten friends, if you had ten friends, Ben, nine out of ten of them would say, yeah, I'd be mad too, and I would ignore Stacy. I'd ignore her because that was totally rude. 
The problem is, even if it's even if it's logical for you to be mad, even if it's uh, and you can see this in our political world, even if it makes good political sense for you to put someone down, for you to destroy someone's career or you know credibility, it, just because it is logical and it it logically can be justified, it doesn't make it moral, right? Your morals, your moral value system and your logic system don't all they don't go together because many times the most moral thing you can do when you see something that's been done wrong, like let's go to the story of the guy that killed the lion. Um, I guess you could gang up and jump in and send it to everyone, you know, and show how moral you are. Or you could just shut your flapper and. Go make a donation to preserving animals, right? But no one would know about that. So what's the point? What's the point? Why would I do something that nobody knows about? I guess because it's moral. So when I think of a moral person, I think of a Gandhi, uh, a Buddha, Mother Teresa. These people didn't promote their actions. They just acted. I think you're being naive, Matt. (laughs) Is that – are you trying to show – are you trying to get me mad so I would – No, I'm trying to be logical. Your larynx. Um, Got to look after yourself in this world. See, again, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Trump. Um, that's a perfect example. That's a perfect example. All of a sudden, it's logical to defend yourself. You feel like you have to defend yourself. Even the guy that was going to rush the stage, he was making a good point. Donald Trump's a bully, so all I wanted to do is just take the – I just wanted to take his – his speaker away, his pulpit away. I wanted to get rid of his stand. I didn't want to let him have his voice anymore. Logical. Logical. Not so logical when you think of the fact that there was tens of thousands of people there that would have stopped him. Uh, Twelve or so, he said, you know, Secret Service people that could have killed him or killed someone else trying to stop him. Not super logical. But he feels like he has moral authority to do that. I guess one of the problems we run into in our society is we think we have a right, and that right means we have no responsibility. We have a right to say what we need to say, to use our voice, to be mad and to take a stand and even charge the stage. We have a right to do this. But there's also a responsibility. Do you know how bad that could have gone? Secret Service that have weapons— this guy could have either been killed or other people harmed or injured or Donald could have had a heart attack. Things could have happened. There's a responsibility that comes along with all of this. So just because you have a moral right or a right, logical right, it doesn't mean it's going to be moral and healthy for you. And remember, check your own gut. If Why do you need to post certain things? Look at what you're posting. If you're somebody that is constantly posting political things or constantly having to beat up the latest issue morally, um, why are we doing that? Ask yourself, what what do I gain by being this type of person? In the end, you're probably not actually improving your moral system. In the end, your moral system is more between you, your God, you and your people around you. You and the followers that respect you and trust you. That's where your moral system creates strength, not in the masses necessarily. Unless you're somebody that is always in the masses uh, with people following you, I'd keep your moral 
compass fine-tuned to the people around you. Hoping to help you see the good in the world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. With the Black Lives Matter and the Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, and Say Her Name social justice movements all in full swing, it seems as if police brutality is at an all-time high, with police officers mainly being drawn from uh, comparably privileged sections of society, men and whites, victims of the criminal justice system, people of color are unjustifiably targeted. Is racial profiling... The only contributing factor to police brutality? Here to answer that question is law professor Frank Rudy Cooper. He is a professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston, where he teaches about constitutional law, criminal procedure, criminal law, and race and gender and law. We are so honored to have you, uh, Frank Rudy Cooper. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, good morning, Matt. Thank you for having me. Loved your article uh, in the conversation. Um, I think it's opening up a, a really important issue about police uh police brutality talk to talk to us about you're you're trying to connect it and and actually are finding evidence about um kind of a masculinity issue a problem of masculinity in our police force talk about your findings absolutely so in a nutshell what i am arguing is that masculinity aggravates a tendency uh, towards racial profiling. And what I mean by that uh, is that masculinity is just, you know, how do we think that men should or do act in this society? Mm. And that could be men who think that or women who think that, and people will act in certain ways, maybe more aggressive, uh, because they're trying to be masculine. And my basic argument is when you have police officers who are mostly men or who are women who may feel that they need to act in a masculine way, and when you have civilians who are mostly racial minority men, Mm. you're going to get both a tendency towards racial profiling and the possibility of some kind of masculinity clash between those parties. So masculinity, you're you're defining really as aggressive, like an aggressive posture – what else? How else do you define it? Yeah. So uh, there are a number of things in the literature. Sociologist Michael Kimmel is probably the leading researcher on masculinity. He talks about a number of things that in the United States relate to masculinity. So one is that there's a certain competitiveness between mm. men. And these are, of course, just tendencies. And then as well, there's the aggressiveness and the need to sort of one-up each other. We can look at uh, certain figures in popular culture and see that they are deemed more masculine when they are seen as more confident, bordering on arrogant, when they uh, start to accrue tokens of esteem like lots of money, Airplanes, helicopters. Women as objects, exactly. (laughs) Gold buildings. (laughs) Yes. Not to name, not to... Not to point anyone out. Um, yeah, of course. So, it, but it's it's a really interesting idea. I've always, I've always. It's funny. I've never thought of it as masculinity. I've kind of uh, thought of it as, you know, control. But I guess that's part of it too. But competitiveness, and it's. But you bring out a really interesting point. If people have a, an inherent bias to a minority group, 
mm-hmm. a fear of that minority group. And then their natural tendency is to meet it with masculinity, force, you know, aggressiveness. It would create uh, a pretty ugly scenario. Yeah, it absolutely could. So if you think of a police officer who may be afraid of a racial minority male that he's confronted with, and then you think of the racial minority male, and racial minority men have tended to be shown less respect in this society than other males, certainly, in this society. And so the racial minority, especially young racial minority male, may be feeling like, I can't let this police officer disrespect me. Mm. And by the same token, police officers are often feeling, I can't let this civilian, this punk kid, disrespect me. Uh, And there's a good reason for that when it comes to police officers, that sometimes they have to exhibit command presence. That means they have to aggressively take control of situations. The danger is that they will, as you said, be more fearful of certain people and start enacting that command presence prematurely. Mm. And then we then we see a scenario on, uh, you know, somebody's filmed it on their iPhone and there was a shooting or some violence. But that may not have been the first interaction that teen had with the police. It may be the 50th. Right? Well, that's absolutely true. And we've seen that sometimes as in Minnesota, uh, that's because police are racial profiling. Yeah. But it may also be because there's you know, a kid in the area that the police know well to be sort of a troublemaker, and they've come across them many times, and so there's a conflict that's ongoing between the police officer and the civilian. And then is it like a duel of masculinity? So the the, yeah. the, the boy, the teen, the teen that's kind of being disruptive has to position and posture himself as more strong and macho. The cop then machos up, and then it's just a macho battle. Yeah, absolutely. That's the danger. So um, I just think of when I was a kid, and I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so growing up in Harvard Square, being confronted by a police officer and thinking, you know, my friends are sitting next to me on Mm -hmm. the one hand, you know, I don't want to be treated like some little kid. I'm, you know, I was 18 or 19 years old. I felt like I was a man and I should be treated with respect. And uh, by the same token, the police officer is just thinking, you know, this punk kid is acting out in the middle of Harvard Square and I've got to maintain control. Mm-hmm. How do you I, – because I look at a lot of the police anyway are coming from military backgrounds. And another thing you point out in your article is they're also coming from many of them fairly privileged communities. And they might be doing this nobly to go serve and to protect yeah. and to help others. But they also may not have had experience with minority communities. And if they have a fear, if they have kind of an inherent insecurity – then machismo is probably the norm. It's just their standard default. Yeah, so you raise a couple of important issues. One is that the way that we privilege uh, military service in this country for police forces, you know, it makes some sense. These are going to be people who will be good candidates, at least in terms of the physical characteristics of that person. But on the other hand, it means that we're more likely to get people who are uh, aggressive um, and perhaps maybe overly aggressive at times because 
that's a quality we want to cultivate in the defenders yeah. of our country. Uh, so that's one problem that you may see uh, men or women uh, with a military background who are more prone to aggressiveness and violence. And then a second problem that you point out is these may mostly be whites and mostly white males who may or may not have had a lot of interaction with racial minorities and racial minority men uh, previously. And that may lead to some misunderstanding, some fear. And when people feel scared, they're more likely to sort of, you know, puff up their chest and try and be aggressive to talk there to sort of uh, push the other person down. Mm. It's I uh, we need your help here, Frank, because I look at it like because, okay, I live in Utah, which is probably the least uh, ethnically diverse place in the United States. And well, probably not. There are other places there, that can make that claim. Are there actually? Okay, good. And um, I mean, I'm on a campus where there's, it's fairly, you know, white, but there's a lot of diversity from other countries. It's pretty diverse yeah. that way. But um, I can just almost hear white populations, people that have grown up in white neighborhoods sitting there saying, look, all of, a lot of these stories of these black kids getting shot they were doing something wrong, right? They were breaking a law or they were sometimes, some of them, but they were doing yeah. something wrong. And it's almost, I think it's just that a, a guy raised in a white neighborhood his entire life, very safe, we don't necessarily relate to the black experience in inner cities and in just and in, in, in growing up in probably in the United States in general. Help us understand how just some of the data, some of the research about what's been happening to the black population as when it comes to profiling and and arrests. Sure, absolutely. So the for one thing, in a lot of racial minority communities in inner cities, um, many of the young men have found that they've had interactions with the police that are very disproportionate to what you would find in a white community. So they're already feeling aggravated and um, disrespected by yeah. the police because they feel they're being singled out as suspects. And uh, occasionally, that's because they're doing something that might lead to suspicion, but often it's not. So uh, that's one thing. So you're mm. going to see some sense of disrespect on the part of racial minority males and feeling disrespected by police. Um, it, when it comes to thinking about these confrontations and saying, oh, well, that person was doing something wrong in the first place, I think it is really important for all of us to step back for a moment and say, what do we really want to happen in these situations? Mm. And what we want is a peaceful resolution to the situation. Even if somebody is doing something wrong, that doesn't mean they should get shot. Right. Um, that should be the absolute last resort when the safety of the officer or the public is really endangered. And so I have argued that we should really be encouraging both sides to de-escalate. So it's not that I encourage, you know, young men who have been racial profiled uh, in the past to say, all right, now I'm going to take it out on this cop who's in front of me. Um, but I also think that police officers have to say to themselves, honestly, the uh, if you look at the Floyd versus New York City case um, in the federal district court, 
uh, you see a lot of evidence of racial profiling by police officers in New York City. And we know that New York City is sort of a leading police department that has influenced a lot of other police departments. Uh, So that's one piece of evidence that there is racial profiling going on in the country. Uh, There's also the fact that there were racial profiles created by the department, um, by, sorry, by the Drug Enforcement Agency back in the 80s. And they did significantly in their drug career profiles sort of lean on race as a way of figuring out who they thought might be a suspect. So there is evidence that there's racial profiling, and that creates the sort of situation where that tendency towards racial profiling can be exacerbated by masculinity when the police officer feels they're being disrespected or the civilian feels they're being disrespected and neither side wants to back down. Yeah. And I could give you more examples of that, certainly. Well, and it's so interestingly, uh, the drug war has been disproportionately impacting minorities, especially black African-American males, right? Yeah. Is that right? Yes, it absolutely is. So there's a, a vast disproportion in who's in jail. And what we see is not just that there's a disproportion in who's in jail, but we also see that there's a disproportion in who gets stopped for drug crimes, Mm. uh, who gets convicted, um, prosecuted, who gets convicted, and there's disproportion all along. However, the most important thing to remember is drug use is roughly equal across races. And when I say roughly equal, I mean actually that it's probably equal. And on for some <laughs> uh, drugs, uh, whites are more likely to use that drug than blacks are, and yet they're still disproportionate. And you hear in New York, uh, and then we got to take a break, but we hear in New York, there's all these incredible claims from the police force that how much they've lowered crime. Crime's mm-hmm. virtually non-existent in New York City now. All of these but a lot of that was based historically on the backs of profiling. Yes, it was based on racial profiling, I would argue, because, um, and I guess let me back up for one second and just say this. To the extent that crime has gone down, what the scholarship suggests is that it's gone down for a lot of reasons other than any particular police policy. Hmm. So we can't claim that racial profiling is the reason that crime okay. is down. Yeah. Okay, we are speaking with Frank Rudy Cooper. He is a professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston. And today is talking to us about America's police culture has a masculinity problem. When we come back, we'll be talking about how we can uh, go forward by de-escalating, moving forward, maybe minimizing a little bit of the masculinity in the police force and maximizing community. We'll talk more with Frank Rudy Cooper when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. We are speaking with Frank Rudy Cooper. Frank is a professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston. He uh, received his uh, Juris Doctorate degree at Duke University. And uh, prior to teaching, Professor Cooper served as a federal district court judicial clerk, uh, which which is a pretty big deal. He has published over 25 scholarly works. And we're talking today about America's police culture has a masculinity problem. Frank Rudy Cooper, thanks again for being with us. Oh, thank you, Matt. It's a pleasure. I'm, I'm learning a lot. And I really uh, I, I just think there's a lot of America that doesn't understand what's really going on in this inner city 
world. Um, you bring up a really interesting point about masculinity, uh, masculinity being kind of kind of the typical uh, behaviors that we see as manly, aggressiveness, uh, competitiveness, one up, one upsmanship. Um, but if, if if police, for example, are profiling, and the research shows it exists, it's real. Um, if they are profiling, then and their t- traditional method of dealing with their police work is using a form of masculinity, it will probably justify more aggressive behavior toward those being profiled. Yes. Well, uh, as I suggested before, there's the need for command presence sometimes by police officers. Right. And that means you've got to shout people down. You've got to take control of the situation. Step that in, yeah. Grabbing them and, you know, throwing them against a car, etc. So um, there's a real reason why that might be necessary. But sometimes all police officers or civilians are doing is acting macho, and that means they're just puffing up their chest and trying to get others to back down. Hmm. And trying to get people to back down for the sake of backing down is what we need to stop. Yeah. Is, have you noticed a difference? Does the research say anything with more and more women joining the force? Is it changing masculinity or the, that approach in policing? Yes, it is somewhat. So there's some suggestion in the research going back to the Rodney King riots that when women enter police departments, there is less police brutality. Now, we can't prove that it's you know, just because they're women. But we know that in this culture, men and women have tendencies to have slightly different behaviors. Hmm. That uh, Carol Gilligan is the scholar who has pointed out that women tend to be less hierarchical and more sort of compromise-oriented. There's been some suggestion in the scholarship that female police officers are better at negotiating their way out of conflict rather than pushing their way out of conflict hmm. physically. Do, do we know if – are there fewer females involved in, uh, in shooting-related incidents um, with – That seems to be the case, that yeah. women are less likely to be involved in the police brutality and the shooting incidents. It's such a, it's such a weird game, isn't it? Because you want them to use command presence, and you can see the need to kind of take charge in certain situations – you also can see the need for compassion. Is this something you can train, or is this something we hire? Yes, I think that we can both hire and train. So starting with hiring, we can hire uh, looking at the personality of the person as well as their record to see if they are compassionate. We really could try and build that into the procedures for police hiring. Right now we look at some civil service numbers and give a preference to military veterans, and that doesn't get at the question of, can this person negotiate their way out of a conflict? And then for training, right now, most of the training focuses on how to take control of situations or how to use your gun, um, and it really doesn't focus on how to negotiate your way out of a conflict. I've recommended that we do more of the sort of verbal judo mm-hmm. uh, training that would allow people to say, okay, you know, you're you're talking a lot of smack because you're sitting in front of your your boys, and you want to be respected. That's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What I need you to do. 
<laughs> right? uh-huh. I need you to stop threatening people. I need you to quiet down so that I can figure out what's going on in this situation. I need you to you know, back out of this space so I can conduct my investigation. And that's the talking down of the situation rather than the physical force. Mm-hmm. It doesn't almost, it seems like, matter because what you're bringing up is masculinity but that could cross all barriers. So, I mean, a female officer could still take on a masculine kind of approach, and that would be just as problematic. Um, Absolutely. Right? So so it's you may be onto something that actually could even uh, – what's the word? Could maybe soften a little bit of the race tension uh, mm-hmm. because it's we're dealing with something that might transcend race. Yeah, I think it does transcend race. And, and as you pointed out, in some ways it – transcends gender. It's not yeah. as though a man has to act in a sort of hyper-masculine way, and it's not as though a woman can't act in ways that are associated with masculinity. Uh, so this crosses a lot of lines, and what I'd really like to see is for people to just think of the police as representing all of us. And so when they uh, act out in a macho way, uh, I don't want them acting out in that way unless it's necessary. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the way to sort of connect this back to, you know, what does, um, as you were saying, a sort of typical white American who is not raised in the inner city, what's their stake in how the police act towards racial minorities in the inner city? And what their stake is, is this is on your behalf. Yeah, right. right. So, do it know, the way I, I would do it. Police, yeah. Right, exactly. I don't want the police to, to beat somebody down when they could have just talked them out of a situation because I feel like they're doing that in my name. Uh-huh. It's funny because I, I look at it and you probably, I don't know how often you interacted with police in the Cambridge Square. Um, in Harvard Square, yeah. Harvard Square, probably not much, really, right? So Not a, not a ton. And, and yet... Uh, that, that's, I think, what's different is that most of us don't ever interact with police unless they're a neighbor, a brother, a friend, family member, or, you know, somebody egged our house or something weird. Right, right. But, but in, in, in inner city, th- these youth might be coming across police, especially if they're being profiled, much more often. Yeah, so there are stories of people who uh, have had, you know, 50 interactions with the police over the course of a year or two. And, you know, for me, I may have had... Uh, other than, as you say, in a friend context, five interactions yeah. with the police, and that's you know that's counting sort of broadly. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Mine are just speeding tickets. That's all I can remember. Every time right. I meet I a cop, I was probably speeding. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is probably pretty normal, I guess. What uh, do you think? Because one of the greatest moments, and I don't know the officer's name, but in the Ferguson tensions that were brewing. There was an, uh, a, a black uh, police officer that was brought in, I think, from the sheriff's oh, yeah. department to lead. And oh, he was brilliant how he yeah. handled the crisis. And you, he, he de-escalated it, almost decreased masculinity, but was tough as nails, but could reach these people that felt so oppressed. Well, it helped that he was from the community, yeah. and that's another thing that we could think about in terms of hiring or protocols. Certainly in the city of Boston, uh, a lot of municipal officials are supposed to live in the city, mm-hmm. right? So uh, if you live in the city, you may or may not live around a lot of racial minority males, but you're in some proximity to them, and better yet, 
maybe you come from the community so that when um, that sergeant went back to the community, he, he was going back home. He was going home. Um, and people understood him as, you know, being part of the community and caring about the community so that when he said, I need people to, you know, protest in a certain way and back away from certain areas, people understood that that was for a reason other than just sort of showing off the latest tank. Yeah. And he did pull the tanks out of there. And that, totally. that kind of message that this is not about seeing how many people we can kill. It's, right. it's really about keeping the peace. That's, I guess, part of the masculinity, right? We always, we, I guess, and that's, some would call that command presence, right? You got to show, we'll yes. handle it. And yep. there's that fine line. Is, is it hard to get minority Americans to want to be police officers? I don't believe that it is. Uh, you know, a lot of times I spoke with the police chief here in uh, Boston, uh, William Evans, who is fantastic, and he just pointed out that uh, he had to, well, let me put it this way. He has tried to bring in more racial minority police officers. He has candidates who are not winning the competition because they're not veterans. Mm. And he's trying to figure out ways to bring in more racial minority police officers. And he's come up with some ways to bring in more racial minority police officers. I won't speak yeah. on his behalf. Well, and it's really hard because you don't want to also sound like you're profiling, <laughs> even right. for well, your I own force. You to, right. right. You need to be fair. But, but also, you kind of need to. Well, uh, it's been found in the federal courts that this can be one reason why you might use something like affirmative action. There you go. You've got a police force that doesn't represent the community. Mm-hmm. That's a problem for all of our safety and peace. Right. Oh, and see, the sad thing is I'd also love to see, you know, more more minorities in my neighborhood that's maybe more white and right. just more integration and, ah, and more officers on the street so my kids can meet them and get to know them and feel safe. And, ah, yes, it's absolutely. a big job, isn't it, Frank? It is a big job, and we've come a long way as a society. We've still got a, a little bit of a ways to go. I tend to think the answer is not to be colorblind or gender neutral, but instead to say, hey, we're all different, and we all deserve equal respect. Yeah. And I guess all of us can do better yeah. at understanding the issue, not just assuming everyone's living like we are. Um, and, you know, I guess, too— figure out what what level of masculinity we bring into everything as well. We can control that. Yeah, absolutely. And we can try and think about it more. And conversations like this are really helpful. So I have appreciated the opportunity to talk with you about it. You bet. Frank, in fact, we're going to have to have you back on another topic. Now that we know we've got this awesome resource, we are going to go to the well again. I I would love that. Frank Rudy Cooper, thank you so much for your insight. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Frank, again, is a professor of law at Suffolk University in Boston, where he teaches constitutional law, criminal procedure, criminal law, and race and gender law. We will take a break, folks. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, interesting, interesting learnings there with Frank Rudy Cooper about uh, masculinity and policing. It's It's got to be a really hard job, right? To be a cop, everywhere you go, something could happen. You know, it's bad every morning just getting ready for work. You've got to strap on a bulletproof, ja- a bulletproof vest. I mean, just... 
getting dressed every morning. Think about it. What do you have to do to get dressed? Okay, I got to do my hair. Got to shower, shave, shine. Oh, jacket. Right. Put on my my uniform. Put on my belt with gun on one side, taser on another side, mace on another side, baton, handcuffs. I mean, I'm assuming when you're putting all of that on every day, it gets a little a little tedious. Uh, check out this call. A Boston uh, man is now facing felony charges after police found an explosive device in his home while investigating his report of a break-in and car theft. So they call the police. Hey, somebody broke into my house and uh, and took my car. The cops show up. They're in the house. They look over. Bada boom, bada bing. There's a bomb an explosive, you know, device, they're calling it, sitting right there. I am the smart. S-M-R-T. I mean, S-M-A-R-T. <laughs> Not so smart. Not so smart, buddy. Kevin Butler, 26, called them saying someone's broken into his home. The officers show up and uh, someone had stolen his car and a safe full of cash. But there is an explosive device there. I mean, that could have gone so wrong. So you're a cop, you show up, you're taking the guy's report, you look on the nightstand or the whatever, the table there, and there's a bomb. So they had to call the bomb squad in. (sighs) Just another day. So as you think about your police out there, there there, there is a degree of masculinity in play. (laughs) You know, these are the guys walking into a scenario when a husband and a wife are fighting. They're just going to walk in there. They're the guys that when there was a call with a man with a gun on a campus, they're the ones that drive to the scene and pull up and jump out as fast as they can and run toward the scene. Everyone else is running away and they run toward. So we probably need a degree of masculinity to even make that attractive. And then we get frustrated with the cops when they become overly masculine, right? And they and they can't pull it back. So training is probably in order. More skills, more tools. It couldn't hurt. And also a deeper respect for what uh, it's like to be a minority in this country. We, we can, as humans, go step in their shoes and try to understand what it's like. One way to do that is just listening to people like Frank Rudy Cooper. So uh, share that uh, last interview with as many people as you can. You can do that by going to iTunes or TuneIn or BYURadio.org, and you can just forward it on. Let's change the world, folks. We're changing the dialogue. That's how we'll do it. We'll take a break. Come back. Hour number two. Next hour, we'll be talking with Pluto. We have an in-studio interview with the dwarf planet Pluto, as today we celebrate Pluto Demotion Day. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. You know those millennials. They're just so lazy. As I look at Ben yawning through the middle of my show. They're not lazy, folks. They've, they've We're misunderstood. Misunderstood, totally. Yep. And they were basically like monsters created to fell. That's what I was thinking, too. So let me give you some other coaching tools. And this isn't just for millennials. This would be for some some ideas for how you can coach other people when they bring you their problem. Right? Because it's easy 
you know, you may have a friend that constantly comes and brings you all of their issues, and you need to fix this for me. Um, but if you're going to coach people, and this would work great with millennials, you know, in coaching them on their own uh, issues as well. But um, I'm going to give you just five basic keys, okay, as we go through this coaching corner. Uh, the first key is to know that the answers, any answer, or I call them a hook, a hook might be something that keeps somebody stuck. All of their answers, all of their hooks are in them, not you. So when somebody comes to ask me a, um, you know, a question, but it's involving them or their life or their uh, experience in the world, when it's about them, the answers are in them, not me. And you got to realize that as a coach. And there's a lot of value to knowing that because if I understand the problems are in them, the issues are in them, then honestly, then I can uh, kind of make it more about them. I also don't have to be offended if they use or take my advice or not. Um, I also can know that if I give a solution that doesn't work, it's because I probably didn't unhook the right issue in them. So I want you to be thinking about somebody that comes up to you, asks you a lot of questions, wants your advice, maybe somebody that doesn't seem to take it a lot, uh, or or the people that maybe are around you wanting insight but don't necessarily ask for it. Know that their issues, their answers are in them. And I'm convinced that uh, that those issues are in them, and I I want them I want them to be responsible for the fact that this is your world. A lot of times I'll ask somebody a question, and they're like, "I don't know, I don't know the answer to that." Well, you must. I don't know is your fast answer that you're just telling me as a coach, but you're the only person that knows why you do what you do, right? I mean, I can guess why you do it, I can surmise, but. You're the one with all of the information. You're the one with all the data. So make sure when you coach somebody that the answers are inside of them, even if it's just coaching them to kick a ball in a goal. And if if they have the inability to do it, then that hook is stopping them, but that hook is inside of them. And the job of a really good coach is to get inside that person and help that person find out what their answers are. Um, one reason that that's important, too, is because in motivation theory, it would say that unless this person uh, – unless the answers are coming from this person, they're less likely to be motivated to actually do anything about it anyway. So turn it back on them and uh, let me show you how we do that. One way to do it is to use questions, right, to turn on some lights. So like, let's say a mother came in and, you know, I don't – my son, we, we were going to move him to a new school. I'm pretty sure it's, I mean, it's an important thing. I'm not sure he's going to like it, but I, I want to move him to this new school. I think it's better for him. And um, they might just right out of the chute say, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I don't know your son. I don't know everything about what's going on here. So be careful to not just jump on that answer. Well, yeah, I would totally move him. I was moved to a new school, and I was his same age, and I turned out great. Um, instead, use some questions, right? So, you know, just use some questions. Like, you know what? I don't I don't know what to do about moving your son yet, but, you know, it sounds like you're really considering it. Um, but before I answer this, can I ask you a few questions? Like, so what are your goals for your son and his situation? And try to help him 
by just asking the question, what are your goals? It allows them to have to go evaluate their goals. Or, uh, you know, what, what do you perceive the problems might be with moving him to this area, to this new school? What does your heart tell you about this decision? What does your mind tell you? You know, and which of those two do you trust more? Which answer do you trust more? Another question you could just simply ask is, why are you asking someone else's advice on this? Why are you not just making the decision yourself? But push on them, right? Because, and push with questions. And let these questions not be to trap them, not be to beat them up, not even just so you know how to answer this person. Ask the questions so that this person has to explore what they are doing, right? If the, if the issue is in them, then ask the questions that help them explore it. The more information we gather here, it's also going to do two things. It's going to give me more data, but it's probably going to lower their emotion about this decision. Anytime somebody brings me a big you know, bundle of emotion, I usually like to get them talking and sharing their feelings about the emotion. So – First step, understand their answers and hooks are in them, in them, not me. Second is use questions to turn the lights on. My goal is just to get information. Once I can figure out what their goals are with their son and what's the history of the situation and what are they feeling right now about it and why are you asking me, why aren't you asking someone else and what does your gut tell you, a lot of those might – they might just answer it themselves, right? Another thing I like to do is as they're talking is I reflect back what I hear them saying. I'll reflect back. So it sounds like you really like to have your child try another school, but you're afraid he'll lose friends if he goes to the new school. Is that what you're saying? And I just hold it up back to what they were to them so that they have to look at what they're saying. And the way I do that is I just basically paraphrase what they just told me. And then I say, so is that what you're saying? And then they have to agree or disagree. Well, yeah, that's – well, and it's it's not just like that. I also – I don't want to feel like I'm too demanding that I'm pushing my son this way. Now, the more they talk, I love it because the more information it gives me about them, but it also allows me to maybe look a little bit deeper at what their motives are, what's driving them, what their concerns are. If this mother, for example, keeps saying, I just don't want to make the decision for him. I just – I want – I don't want to make a mistake and I feel like I might be pushing him too hard. But then I'd go talk more about that. Man, it sounds like you feel like you're applying a lot of pressure about this decision. Tell me more about that and then let them explore that issue. Does that make sense? So as they're sharing their issues, the issue is usually never the real issue we're discussing. This isn't about school. This is about this mother's concerned about her son. She's concerned and she wants to make a change for her son. And she's also concerned that the change will create other problems like he will lose his friends or she's just being too demanding. So if you hold it up, don't agree with it, don't disagree with it, don't argue it. I don't even give other advice. I just say – I just kind of let them kind of sift through what they're thinking about. And by not taking a position, then they don't have to like, you know, retract into their position and then we don't have to debate about it. Keep it very open so we can keep this issue moving until we find out what's going on. Then another rule I like to use is I point out their inconsistencies. So it sounds like you're worried about your son and 
you know, and his grades, and yet you also don't want to feel like you're making the decision for your son. Is that what you're, is that what you're feeling? This, that's a little bit of an inconsistency, right? You want him to move on, and you're concerned it's not a great idea. Point out the inconsistencies. What I find many times, it's the inconsistencies in our thinking that come out in a conversation. And if we can hold it up, not call them on it. Oh, it sounds like this is what's really going on. You don't need to be the pop psychologist. Just I'm noticing that you you really feel like you're pushing your kid too hard. And you also really feel strongly that he needs to move on. Talk to me about that. And then if I can get them to be honest a little bit more about the inconsistency, that's where I see a lot of truth come out when I'm coaching couples, when I'm working with people. Um, it's, it's pretty interesting stuff. And so point out those inconsistencies. And then last and certainly not least, be cautious about giving advice, right? Be cautious about giving advice. And one reason I say that is because um, people take your advice, right? So if you give advice, people are going to take it. It's one of the weirdest things I learned being a kind of a radio TV personality is people actually take your advice. Be super careful offering it. The other reason I want you to be super careful offering advice is because um, they also need people to blame, so if they don't like your advice or if your advice backfires, you're the one that gave it. So they will hold you accountable to it, right? Five basic, easy coaching steps. Know your answers and hooks are in the people you're talking to, not you. Use questions to turn on some lights. Reflect back what you hear them saying. Point out their inconsistencies, cautiously, of course. And be careful giving advice, folks. Be careful. I've seen people advise uh, a divorce because their friend gave him that advice be careful the advice you give anybody um, especially if you haven't done the other steps before it stick with us folks helping you live longer and love stronger we'll be right back welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend show let's face it whether we like it uh, or not, there there always seems to be one person in the office who we just can't seem to get along with. They're always the one cracking crude jokes, inappropriately speaking out, or just making those around them feel really uncomfortable. They may even be the type that seem to enjoy bullying others that are around them. We try ignoring them. We might try to be polite, sometimes even going as far as trying to befriend them at the cost of our own mental sanity. But just how should we really be dealing with these jerks uh, that we deal with? Well, Peter Economy, our next guest, is a best-selling author, business author. He's here with us this morning to help us address an article he wrote, How to Deal with the Jerks in the Office. And we appreciate you, Peter. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Matt. It's great to be with you today. You are uh, you're a busy man. You have more than eighty books um, uh-huh. to your credit, and uh, you've been a ghostwriter. You work. You write a lot for Ink Magazine as well. How did you get on the topic of dealing with jerks? 
Well, it's a it's a real common uh, topic. It's something we've all dealt with in in jobs. I'm, you know, I don't think there's a single person who probably hasn't had to deal with a jerk at work or you know in their personal lives as well. So it's just a real common thing. You uh, you quote a really interesting statistic that says forty percent of employees say that working with an unpleasant person, I guess a jerk, lowers productivity. And uh, it's it's interesting. That's that's when you look at that, you know, economically, that's a that's a lot of money that jerks are costing us. Yeah, it's a tremendous hit on productivity. And, and it's not just, you know, that aspect, which is huge. But but think about all the stress that, that working with a jerk would cause, too. And stress is, is another major um you know, destroyer of, of just productivity at work. And then also in your personal life, it can cause um, um, all sorts of uh, illnesses and, and uh, personal uh, health afflictions. Yeah, it's um, it, it starts to take it out of us. Uh, I think it was the Gallup organization talked about um, engagement in our offices. And I guess only about 70 percent of employees were like were actively or 70 percent of employees were disengaged not into their work environment. And I, I guess I'm assuming a lot of that might, or some of that has to do with the stress they're feeling, kind of the lack of motivation, and then the bully, the jerk. Yeah, it's, it's really a shocking statistic. And Gallup you know, is, has surveyed this for several years, and it's, it's pretty consistent over the years that, that there is that much you know, 70% disengagement. Only about 30% of employees are actually engaged in their work, actually really enjoying where they work and, and doing, a, you know, a really good job. So it's, it's, it is shocking. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but certainly office jerks and bullies aren't helping out, that's for sure. What do you think? I mean, maybe is that the behavior? Is that what happens when you are disengaged, when you are stressed at work? Are, are some people just jerks because they're stressed themselves? I'm sure there's some of that. I think some people are just, you know, that's just their personality. That's the way that they've they've growing up and that's the way that they are and um you know they when they get under stress yeah they're probably even worse they you know i think when they get, when when a jerk gets stressed <laughs> it, it, it's bad for everybody it, it, it turns up the knob you know it, it goes to 11 <laughs> when, yeah totally when the jerk is under stress <laughs> yeah when the jerk's under stress everyone's under stress is it uh I, I guess we almost just kind of fall into survival mode don't we 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 try either i mean i guess you could try to fight the jerk but that seems to get ugly more people seem to just kind of avoid the jerk and um, and it also seems like it might be something that they – this is where they're going to go start talking with coworkers behind the back and kind of right. pl- playing more of the passive-aggressive side. Wh- what do you – I mean, what's the impact of that? What What is the appropriate response as we start dealing with a jerk? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, is that, you know, we all work in, in teams of people. I, I think, you know, there's certainly been a big shift in, in many workplaces towards working in teams and putting a large emphasis on teamwork. And, you know, the team has to be, uh, has to get along. Everyone has to get along. Everybody has to work together. And when you've got people that, that you can't work with, you know, comfortably, who are, who are creating discomfort, that, that disrupts the team. And you can't just avoid, you can't just, you know, avoid that person, kind of shun them, kind of push them out of the team, because they need to be contributing too. And, and and so you've got to you've got to deal with the situation. You can't just I, I don't think you can just avoid it, especially, in, you know, in a teamwork situation where you're all trying to work together to accomplish common goals. Right. And what if it's your boss? Right. What, what if it's somebody that what if the jerk is yeah. somebody that's a, 
a real important person to you. Yeah, well, that's when you've got a real problem because, you know, I think, um, you know, speaking of statistics and stuff, but the Gallup organization found that the number one reason people, you know, quit their jobs is because they've got a bad boss. You know, their boss may be a jerk. Hmm. And that's the number one reason people will quit. And, and the statistics are showing that there's a, a large number of jobs that are coming, you know, in the future, and there aren't going to be enough people to fill them. Uh, this next generation that's coming along, Generation Z, um, is a smaller generation. There's just not as many people in it. And I think the, I saw something recently that there's going to be a, a surplus of about 300,000 jobs in the next five years or so. And yeah. that means that companies have to do everything they can to retain their employees to, you know, attract the best employees and retain them. Yeah. And if you've got a if you've got a bad boss, you know, who's a jerk and they're they're causing people to quit, that's not good for the company. No. Well, and imagine you can't retain people, your your turnover, your overhead. I mean, it costs a lot yeah. of money to to get somebody into the company, to get them up to speed and then to have them leave again because of a a boss or a bully. What do you sense causes the jerk uh in uh, in these people? What's their driver? What is their problem? Well, they get satisfaction from pushing people's buttons. Uh, you know, there's a, there's this internal satisfaction they get for whatever reason, you know, without getting into all their history, you know, how they were raised and all that. But um, they, they are satisfied when, when people, when, when they push people's buttons and, and make them uncomfortable, make them suffer, make them uh, feel bad. And um, it's just some sort of internal thing that, that, that gives them satisfaction. Yeah, maybe a little more control, more power over sure. you. And especially if exactly. if you're the only one being bothered, Peter, like if, if I'm the only one that's really irked by this guy or he only does it to me, then I really have nowhere to turn. Well, yeah, and, and you've, you've, you've always got your boss to turn to. I mean, you've, right. you've got to... You know, you can certainly try to confront this person. You can take them on, and if that doesn't work, then you've got your boss, and hopefully your boss will, will step in and try to, to help help the situation. It's interesting, too, because it seems like some of these scenarios could be actually created by a boss where they – and not meaning to, but they use competitive systems. So there's a lot of competition on these teams sometimes, yeah. and that, that in and of itself could be, you know, problematic. Yeah, well, you know, I've I've worked in companies myself, you know, in the past where a, a boss will tolerate um, someone who's a real jerk. Mm-hmm. I mean, because because they perform well. Yeah, they're a top they're performer. The performer on the team, they're a top performer, and they and they actually sort of look the other way because they don't want to let this person go. They don't want to, you know, get them mad and have them leave because um, because they confront them. So they just let them keep doing what they're doing. Um, and then, and uh, as the rest of the team goes away or, or checks out, like you said, they become disengaged. How do we how do we determine if it's a big enough problem for us that we need to address it? Well, certainly on a personal level, if, if you're feeling uncomfortable, if you can't focus on your job 100 percent because of this jerk, then that's that's big enough. That's a big enough problem um, to to de- to you know confront and and deal with. Um, if, and then if others are feeling the same way, I mean, if you're talking to your friends there at work and they're saying the same thing, um, then you've got a really big problem. Um, mm. But even if it's just yourself and you're feeling uncomfortable, that's something that you, you should deal with. I mean, if I'm thinking about it all the time, if, I, if I'm if i dreading going to work as I pull in and I see his car and I'm like, ah, oh, geez, uh, he's here. I guess exactly. if it's in my mind, 
I'm, I'm going to act it out one way or another. I probably need to get it out of me by bringing it up instead of just acting it out passively exactly. or aggressively. That's what I would recommend. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely recommend that. Let's uh, let's take a break. We're speaking with Peter Economy. He's a, an author and a writer. He has written extensively for Inc.com. You can go uh, find him under Leadership Guy, but you can also look him up at PeterEconomy.com. By the way, Peter, killer name, especially for Inc. Magazine. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. We'll take a break, have more with uh, Peter Economy, and uh, fi- figure out exactly how we confront the jerks in our lives. It's not easy, is it, folks? It's just life, part of life. We'll take a break, come back, helping you learn how to live healthier, happier lives. We'll be right back. Sincere form of flattery, so I thank you. Identity theft is not a joke, Jim. Millions of families suffer every year. Michael! Oh, that's funny. Michael! There you go. Oh, I love that. Dwight Schrute, a pretty great example of the jerk in the office. And uh, one way that Jim, his counterpart, is trying to deal with him is just mimic him, dress like him. That's why Dwight's all ticked off about identity theft. Joining us on the phone is Peter Economy. Peter is a best-selling business author, ghostwriter, development, developmental editor, and publishing consultant with more than 80 books to his credit. He writes columns on leadership and management for Inc.com. He's called The Leadership Guy and also has served as associate editor for Leader to Leader magazine since 2001. Peter, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for teaching us about how to deal with the Dwights in our lives. Uh, my pleasure, Matt. So if if I decide I need to confront somebody um, because they're being a Dwight, they're being a jerk consistently to me, they're bothering me, how, how do I prepare? What do I do to get ready to have this conversation? Well, I, th- I think you get the facts. You, you, you really sit down and assess how is this person impacting you personally? You know, what, are the, what are the feelings you're feeling? What is it that they're doing that is... is you know, causing these these um, buttons to be pushed within you, and and just write it down because uh, you want to kind of prepare a script um, to deal with this person. You're going to want to sit down with them and talk to them. So pre- to prepare, you just want to do a little bit of research. What are they doing? What's the behavior that's bugging you, and how is it affecting you and your your ability to do your work, to do your job? The script idea is, I think it's a really important idea. It gives me a chance. I know how they'll respond. I've seen them respond a hundred times to other people. And so by thinking it out, I guess it gives me it gives me the next thing to say, the next thing to do. I'm wondering if that would alleviate some of my anxiety about addressing it. Well, definitely. Just just you know, getting getting taking the time to write it out to to really think about what what's happening within you. Um, what are the behaviors that are bothering you, and 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 how is it affecting your work? Uh, that definitely will reduce your own anxiety just going through that process before you even talk to this this person that's that's the jerk at the office. And having the facts, I think, too, is powerful because a lot of times we don't make our decisions based on facts. We make it kind of on based on an interpretation or a conclusion we've made. 
but when it, a lot of times I've noticed as I do, I do a lot of mediation uh, work and helping couples talk. I notice when the fight starts, we start eventually when it's not working anymore, we start looking for the facts of the argument. So, so, so what do you mean? Right. I didn't say that. I said this and I didn't mean that. So, so having the facts, I guess, make sure I can go back to something that's on solid ground. Yeah. And, and so much of this is, you know, is triggered by emotion. I mean, uh, you know, when, when they, when these jerks in our office are pushing our, our buttons, these are mostly emotional buttons. They're, they're, you know, triggering strong emotions within us. And if you can go back to the facts, you know, to the rational facts and have those as sort of the bedrock of your, your approach here, um, that'll help you get past those emotions hmm. that, that may be clouding, clouding your mind a bit. Yeah, I, I, I guess that is the key, too, is you got to go with your emotion in check, because if not, you're going to look like a loose cannon. And it seems like the bully is going to love that. Yeah, that'll make them feel even more, you know, excited and you know, it's like, wow, I'm really doing it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm really enjoying this. You yeah, know? you're playing my game my way. I'll I, then they'll exactly. have a huge advantage. What are, do you have any words or phrases, things you we should maybe avoid saying, things we should watch out for? Well, I, I don't think you want to put, um, you know, you don't want to inflame the situation by by putting blame on them. You know, by by saying, you know, you're such a jerk and, and, and call, you know, calling them names, like, let's say name calling. We shouldn't be doing name calling. Mm-hmm. You should just be talking in rational terms, you know, um, what you do when you um, do this, it, it causes me to feel this way. And when I feel this way, I can't focus on my work and, and, and I can't be productive in my job. And it's, it's, it's causing problems with my ability to do my work. Because so, it could just yeah, be... Avoid Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'd avoid name calling and, yeah. and, and, like you said, playing at their level. It's um, Sometimes this could just be, I mean, they could be a jerk overtly taking you on, but sometimes it could be just subtle stuff, you know, moving the stapler, <laughs> playing music. Right. It, it could just be, it could be things you've asked them to do. Hey, can you always return my stapler when you borrow it? Sure, sure, sure. Right. Um, and and <laughs> what what I wonder too is that we might be running into somebody that's that's not just a jerk necessarily. Some people it seems like are just clueless. And yeah, I guess we want to make exactly. sure we differentiate. Right? Is this are they just clueless? Do they do this to everybody, or is it is there something about my relationship with them? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful point um, because a lot of times the people who are jerks who we consider jerks in the office really don't even know what they're what they're doing that causes people to to react in that way. They don't realize they're being jerks. Yeah, um, and, and you're actually do you know doing them a favor by pointing these things out. Napoleon uh, Bonaparte had a quote that said, "Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence." <laughs> and it, don't you think it seems yeah. like a lot of a lot of the people around us, like they might be emotionally challenged, they might be socially challenged, and yet it doesn't mean they they're not a brilliant you know engineer or they're not a brilliant contributor sure. on a team. They just don't know how to be on a team. Exactly, and and you're actually helping them by by pointing out their behaviors that are causing problems in the office. I mean, they may not, like you said, they may be clueless. They may not be aware. And, and it's to their benefit to, to be, you know, become aware of these things. You're doing them a favor. Yeah, you, re- no, you really are. And I guess because it would be easier to maybe not have the conversation and just suck it up, so to speak, 
but you're not helping right. them and you're not alleviating your stress either. Exactly. Yeah. I think the best thing is, is to take it on, you know, to, to deal with it, not to ignore it. And um, let's say I do that. I, I guess if it doesn't go well, I mean, is this something I should try to do privately? I mean, I personally would probably want to do it privately, but I also would want to witness. <laughs> so um, I don't know how you get the best of both worlds there. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I, I would agree that I think the first conversation is private. I mean, you don't want to do this publicly. You don't want to call them out in front of a bunch of people and embarrass them. Again, especially if it's something, you know, an innocent behavior that they're not really aware of that they're that's causing problems. Um, but, yeah, I'd say privately the initial conversation to just be like in an office or maybe outside the building. Let's go for a walk. Let's talk. Um, and I don't know about the witness part of it, but I'd certainly have a private conversation initially. And if it went well, great. Um, problem solved. If it doesn't go well, then I think that's when you have to, you know, kind of escalate things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as anybody that's listening could be asking themselves, boy, I wonder if I'm perceived as a jerk. Uh, it, 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 what, what would be some signs that you are a jerk? for you to detect, um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Coming at it yeah. from the personal level, am I a jerk here? Yeah, well, certainly when people start avoiding you, uh, that's probably sign number one. Um, you know, you walk into the office and everybody runs away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they run the other direction. That's certainly a strong sign that there's a problem. And, you know, people who may have treated, you know, you you had good relationships with initially at work and they, 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 these relationships start falling apart for whatever reason. That may be a sign that something within you is, is, is causing problems, especially when it's more than just one person. If, uh, if, if more than one person is having problems with you and is starting to avoid you, mm. that kind of thing. It really reminds me of playground behavior, you know, yeah. where there's the bully and then there's the ones that kind of suck up to the bully and then they become part of the gang with the bully. And they're usually right. not as mean, but they have to play up to the bully. And uh, But it also is interesting, um, if somebody's as, as aggressive as a bully is, then maybe you taking them on, or I mean, that sounds harsh, but you addressing it with some strength might be actually perceived as positive. They might Definitely. respect that. Um, exactly. They also might that, that's, beat that's you true. down, but... <laughs> No, I, I think I, you're, you're exactly right. Um, you know, when you come at it with strength within yourself, that, that's something that's the, that that person's going to respect. And, 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 and it may be enough to help them change their behavior. Yeah. I guess in the end, uh, every case is so, is so different and so personal. Sure. Um, when, and you see it with Inc. Magazine and all the writing that you do is it's it's really a lot a lot of our problems i mean a lot of our success and problems in business it's about people isn't it it's about your ability to be connected with people business is all about people it's all about relationships that you build no matter what kind of job you have whether it's a sales job you know if you're in accounting um you're a manager it's all about people and, and your relationships and your ability to communicate um well with other people and get along with people and work together with other people it's you know Business is people. That's right. You're right. It's uh, it's all about the people, isn't it, Peter? Well, Peter, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there at Inc. Magazine. And uh, I suggest everybody go to your website, PeterEconomy.com. PeterEconomy.com. Wonderful uh, posts there. You've done a lot of writing, Peter. Keep up the great work. 
Thanks so much, Matt. I really appreciate it. You bet. PeterEconomy.com. You can get everything. Five gold medal habits for success in your career. Six habits for hyper success in business. Wonderful resource if you're a manager as well. It'll probably give you some good stuff to talk about in your meetings. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, do a quick little coach's corner. Plus, we're going to figure out uh, earlier Terry was talking about something that that they're now, I guess, having at the pumps, at the gas pump, that you won't believe. There's this new feature. But will we use it? Stick with us. We'll find out what he's talking about. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. It's tough uh, to be uh, dealing with somebody that's really difficult for you every day, day in, day out. But one of the little pieces of advice I have, um, you know, it takes two to tango. And if you know somebody's pretty aggressive or reactive, I mean, short of you being physically abused by this person, you could have a little fun. Right. So if they if they always move your stapler for fun, you know, hide the stapler or put it in the jello as they did with the white or tie a big rope around your stapler as a joke. Like I would tie a huge mooring line rope to my stapler and put the guy's name on it. This was for you, Jim. So my stapler doesn't leave my desk. Put it in jello. Wouldn't that be great? Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But some people are just strange. Uh, And uh, I wanted to tell this story. And we've now got Terry here. Um, So, Terry, get ready to talk to us about what's going on at the pump. But first, here's the story. A woman who drove her husband's body on a days-long traveling wake in Alaska has not been accused of breaking any laws. Hmm. Right. So a woman took her husband that had passed away, 78 year old man had died of natural causes. She put him in an aluminum transport casket. And then police say the woman stopped at canneries for ice in Alaska to put in the truck bed during the rolling wake. The I'm man- not dead. Think I'll go for a walk. <laughs> I feel happy. I feel happy. They shut the door on him. The man had died of natural causes. The mortuary took custody of the body after authorities were called. Police say hopefully the woman won't take her husband back out on the road, but that he wasn't aware of any laws that she had broken. Hmm. So apparently it's not illegal, I guess, once your spouse has been, you know, you know, uh, what do we call it? Your friend here is only mostly dead. Once they've been, once the doctors called it, yeah, and I guess the paperwork's been filled out. You can take them in the then the body's station re- wagon released and, to the family, as they call it. Yeah, and, and yeah. just hit the road. Off you go on a wake. Keep him on ice. Now, sure, she can do it legally, but uh, if she brought the guy to work, yeah, there's places where you don't. People want are going to be a little frustrated. Yeah, you don't need to do a weekend at Bernie's. Yeah. Situation. Oh, I thought he died. No, he's we. We're just having a little wake now. 
That's kind of weird. Um, okay, now you have an update so for I, us. So st- I stopped to get gas this morning. Okay. Noticed I was out. My car started chiming at as like it does. four in the morning. Yeah, so I'm standing there and I'm looking at the pump, you know, yeah. like you do. Uh-huh. And I noticed to the side of it, and I'm going to show you this photograph here, there is a box of plastic gloves. Really? Germ-free pumping. On the box, it says... Fuel nozzles are one of the most widely used public service surfaces during our daily commute. Ah. Right? So yeah. there there are surface, lots of people grab them, possibility of germs, contaminants and stuff. You grab it, fill up your car, just get in the car and go. People eat in their cars. Yeah. Are, Boy. So you pull up to pump your gas. Are you going to stop, pull out the plastic gloves, put them on, and then uh, pump your gas? Well, I don't ever think of the gas hose and nozzle as a health issue except for the fact that there's gasoline in it yeah but i mean you think about it yeah people are touching it all day long well sure but you know what you you probably have more germs on your phone i might use the glove to put over my phone yeah those gloves would have multiple applications if you want to take a little gas to go yeah yeah, fill up a glove glove. tie off about 20 of those yeah so but it seems like is that is that necessary, do you think? No, that's weird. But you know who I could see? I could see, like, my wife might love that. Have you seen that before? Anywhere? No, never seen that. It's just, they're, they're just bolted to the side of all of the gas pumps at the station I stopped This is at. what's weird about society. When I was a kid, people would pump gas and fix your car without gloves. Mm-hmm. Now I see a lot of people working on your car with gloves. Well, yeah. You know, which was weird. I mean, it makes it smart, right? Yeah. Stay clean. Um, well, that and you, as you're, you know, working on different parts, you could bump your hand and yeah. cut your hand. So they so, didn't do that. But they didn't used to do that. No. They just used to man up and just go in there and touch take care that of business. scalding yeah. hot radiator cap. Right. If the dead body you're transporting during mm-hmm. the gas break, you know, if it's he, a great point. That opens up. You could close that up again. What they ought to have is ice and gloves in case you are going to have a moving wake. So I just thought this was very weird. odd. I've never that, seen like, that. Who's going to glove up to you know pump their gas? It seems like it makes... you have a bigger risk when you hit the restroom. Yeah, they ought to just have. They always have the hand sanitizer. Yeah, that nobody uses. Right. I think it made more sense to put the hand sanitizer in your car. Sure. And then just you know, if you're that concerned about it, sanitize See, after you pump up. That's one thing we you get on the Matt Townsend show. We bring you the latest, greatest sanitary devices to make sure that as you pump your gas, you don't get an infection. Because we care. We'll take a break. Hour number three. Up next, folks, this is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. We'll be back.